teacher dedication just a moment ago, one of the things that we didn't include actually, but is just as vitally important as the ministry of our children's church, which Amy Greening is, is coordinating. So thank you, Amy, for coordinating that. It's also a vital ministry in our church and the, the, uh, the teachers who are heading down even now. Uh, thank you so much for the important work that you're doing there as well. Would you now bow with me and let's pray together as we enter God's word. Father God, we thank you again for your word. And we thank you that by your word we have life. We have everything we need to guide our lives, even in a dark world. And Lord, as we consider the darkness of the world around us, it is so easy to get focused on it, to feel like the blind man in the video we just saw, that there's no way out. And yet, Lord, by your power, just as you worked many years ago healing the blind, Lord, you are still doing that work today. And ultimately, you are doing that by healing our spiritual blindness so we can see. And so, Father, by that same power and the work of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that work even in our hearts this morning. That by your word, you would shine light into our lives. Oh, Lord, into even the dark corners that we don't even know are there. Father, we pray that even there, you would do your work this morning. So, speak to us. I pray, Lord, that you would give me boldness to speak this word. And you know how I've wrestled with this word, Lord, and so I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts just as you've worked in mine in this past week of preparation. And so I pray, Father, that this word would be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. I begin by sharing with you a story that I've shared once before, but that was six years ago, so I doubt many of you remember it, but we'll see if you do. The story goes that a man was going to bed one night when his wife told him that he'd left the light on in the garden shed. She could see the light was on from the bedroom window, but he said, well, I haven't been in the shed all day. I certainly didn't leave the light on. So he went and looked out the window himself, and sure enough, the light was on, and soon he saw shadows moving within the shed. There was a gang of thieves in his shed stealing his things. Immediately, he ran to the phone, and he called the police. However, they informed him that there were no officers in the area, so no one was available to catch the thieves. He said, fine, okay, hung up the phone, counted to 30, and called right back. Hello, I just called you a few seconds ago because there were hoodlums robbing my shed. Well, you don't have to worry about them anymore. I shot them all. And with that, he hung up the phone. Within five minutes, there were half a dozen police cars swarming his neighborhood. They surrounded his house, and armed response units stormed the shed, and they caught the burglars red-handed. Afterward, one of the policemen said to the man, I thought you said you'd shot them all. To which the man replied, and I thought you said there were no police available. Unfortunately, that's sometimes how the world works, isn't it? The old saying of the greasy, uh, part of the greasy deal. <laughs> The squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Sometimes just getting someone's attention is the hard part. Sometimes we feel we have to do whatever it takes just to capture someone's attention. And then holding on to that attention is equally as difficult sometimes. A similar thing happened just a few weeks ago that grabbed the collective public's attention in regards to the Syrian refugee crisis. Of course, We've been aware of the civil war and the crisis that's been unfolding in the Middle East for a number of years now as 
ISIS has been wreaking havoc in, in Iraq and in Syria. Countless hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced. Tens of thousands have been killed, many of them murdered outright. And as we've been aware of these things over the last couple of years, I've tried to keep it in our mind's eye to remember, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been persecuted for the sake of their faith. They've been deliberately targeted and killed in horrific ways. I shared with you a while ago of how a Christian school was attacked and some of the students were even crucified by the ISIS soldiers in front of their own parents before they killed them as well. This spring on our trip to Israel, Leanne and I had the opportunity to stand directly on the border with Syria and look into the country. And on this hilltop, it was only 60 kilometers north to Damascus. Only 60 kilometers, and it was a surreal experience to stand there in safety and look across a, a barbed wire fence and to think just on the other side, for simply being a Christian, my life would be in immediate peril. And so, as I consider all of these things, how does this affect me, that so many others are in such horrific danger, in such terrible circumstances? On the grand scale, I could give you the numbers. The conflict began in 2011. Over 4 million people have fled the region to neighboring countries, with an estimated 2.1 million refugees in Turkey alone. Those numbers are staggering, but they don't really do anything to us now, do they? They're not brought down to the human level of where we can really empathize and have compassion. And so, though I was even there on the ground to physically see the nation, and though our news outlets have been telling us these things for quite some time, we, and I include myself in that, we have remained largely indifferent to their plight. But all of that changed just a week ago Wednesday, when one single image grabbed our collective attention in a way that all of the previous news stories on the crisis have not. I'm sure many of you know which image I'm referring to. You've seen the picture. The picture that was taken of a drowned three-year-old Syrian boy washed up on the beach, face down in the surf. And in just a moment, I'm going to show you that picture. And I want to give you fair warning that though the picture is not graphic, it is troubling. And so if you're a parent who would rather not have your children see it, I just want to give you a moment to remove them or avert their eyes as the picture is shown. The picture ran on the front page of almost every major newspaper around the world. On many of them, it was printed without a headline. The image spoke for itself. For it captured the essence of the tragedy in the most profound way possible. The boy's name in the picture is Alan Kurdi. I'm now just going to get Corey to show us that picture for just a moment. I want you to just look at it without any comment by me. Go ahead, Corey. We'll come back to that as soon as they've got it figured out back there. Now, for those of you who have seen the picture and know what I'm talking about, 
you probably paused whatever you were doing when you first saw it. I saw the picture late Wednesday night on September the 2nd. I'd been helping my family run a combine that night, and so when I got home late, around midnight, by sheer force of habit, even though I was tired, I checked the news headlines, and there it was. And for the longest time, I didn't even click on the link to the story. I just stared at the image. The tiny body, little red t-shirt, and blue running shoes. An innocent child caught up and drowned in the wake of evil forces far beyond his control. And being a father of two little boys close to the same age, it didn't help me. I couldn't shake the thought of, what if that was my boy? What if that was my Declan or my Theodore? And the only prayer that came to my mind was, Lord, have mercy. Lord, how long must this go on? And I'll readily confess to you that in that moment, I felt utter sadness and anger. But more than anything else, I felt an overwhelming sense of helplessness. Because for that boy and his older brother, who had also drowned, they are beyond anyone's ability to help them now. And equally for their father, who was only trying to make a better life for his family by escaping to Europe, only to have their small boat capsize in the rough waters, then desperately fight to save his family, only to feel them slip from his grasp, he now has to live with that the rest of his life. And no matter how much people want to try to help him now, no one can return his children to him. And then for the hundreds of thousands of children still living under the same conditions as refugees with no homes to go back to, what can I, as just one man in the nation of Canada, what can I do about it? I feel helpless. And so finally I pray to Lord, what would you have me do? And almost immediately I sense the Holy Spirit impress in my heart one simple thought. Don't look away. Don't look away. And I've spent the last week and a half thinking and praying and studying God's word about what that means for myself. And not only for myself, but for all Christians as we grapple with how to respond to not only this ongoing tragedy, but to any time we are faced by the plight of others in need. And so for the sake of simplicity, I've boiled it down to three points. The first is this, don't look away. Second, allow your compassion to translate into action. And third, be prepared that your action will cost you something. Now, as I studied God's word on this, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan just jumped out at me as a tangible text that we can look at this morning on how to respond to situations such as this. So I'd invite you to turn there with me to Luke chapter 10. If you're not there already, I'll give you a moment to do so. We're beginning there in verse 29. And uh, at this point, uh, Corey, I don't know if you have the if you have the pictures ready to go. I'm just going to uh, take a moment before we go into the text, and I want you to take a look at, at the picture so that we can really grasp what has so caught the attention of the world. Go ahead.
Now, if that doesn't do something to you, I don't know what to say. You can take it down now, Corey. Thanks. As we as we look at the face of something of this magnitude, it's okay to feel something, to have our hearts stirred. That's a good thing. And it's what we do next that is of such vital importance. And that is what I want to get into this morning. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 29 to 37, we see a famous parable that we really don't need to rehash. We know the ins and outs of this story oh so well, that of the Good Samaritan. And Corey, if you want to pull up the picture of the dirt road, uh, this is the context for our story this morning. When we were in Israel, we had the opportunity to literally retrace the steps of Jesus' scenario. As he says, a certain man was heading down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it is downhill because Jerusalem is up in the mountains and Jericho is down on the plain. And so as we, as we headed down, of course now it's a superhighway, headed down the highway, I was looking at the hillside and envisioning the story that Jesus told and this dirt road, looking out the bus window, just caught my attention. That this is what it certainly must have looked like, the setting for the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here we see this, this dirt road, there's cliffs on either side where bandits could be hiding easily. And here's the setting that I want you to visualize as a man is heading down and he's, he's attacked and mugged by robbers on the road. And so there he is, he's left for dead, he's disfigured, he's bleeding, and this is where we pick up the story in verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he had come to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, at initial breaststroke, as we read this story, the first thought would be, oh great, a priest happened by, who better to help a man in need than someone who has given their lives to helping others. He has made a vow to God. He has arrived on the scene. Everything's going to be okay. That's not how the story goes, is it? Same thing with the Levite. The Levite comes across, same thing. Another man committed to the work of God, and he sees him, and he too passes by on the other side. Now, I want you to notice one thing in this text that really jumped out to me this week. They both are described as seeing the wounded man. They saw him. Now, did they want to see him? Think about that for a second. Did they want to see the wounded man? I believe the answer is no. They wish that they hadn't seen him in the first place. Because the moment they see the wounded man, they can't unsee him, if you know what I mean. When you see someone in trouble, you can't just delete that file from your memory banks and carry on as though you have no obligation to help. No, they couldn't unsee the man. Because at the point of seeing, they are immediately burdened with the responsibility of knowing that someone is in desperate need of help. And so at this point, they only have two options. They can A, go and help the man in whatever way they can, or B, they can look away. Remember, they saw him. They are looking at him. He is lying down in the dirt, bloodied and broken. They see him. But in order to continue on, at some point, they had to look away. They had to look away and therefore carry on as though they had not seen him, as though they are innocent of this man's situation. 
as though they have no responsibility to him, and they can carry on as though it affected them in no way whatsoever. I'm sure, though, if we considered their position, I'm sure the self-righteous priest and the pious Levite were most likely troubled by what they had seen that day. They didn't like seeing a man in that position. I'm quite certain that if Jesus were to expand on the parable, he might have included something like, in the synagogue and the falafel shop the next day, they would have told the dramatic story of how they'd seen this broken man on the side of the road, and they probably would have lamented the state of the world today. They would have lamented how we can't travel without fear anymore. But the reality would have remained that they weren't troubled enough to actually do something. Sure, they, they had some feelings of, oh, this isn't great, I'm sorry for the guy, but what can I do? For at the moment of decision, though they saw the man and they saw his need, they looked away. And this is the great temptation for each one of us when we are faced by the suffering of others. We see their need, we feel troubled, we feel disturbed, but in the end, do we do something or do we look away? Let me ask you, how many times have you seen someone in a broken down vehicle on the side of the road and looked away? How many times have you looked away from the beggar on the street corner or in the superstore parking lot? So if we can so easily look away from real people who are right before us, how much easier is it for us to see the image the three-year-old Alan Curdy lament the sad state of affairs in the world today and then just like the priest and the Levite, look away and do nothing. Sadly, I can tell you from experience, it's incredibly easy. We've conditioned ourselves to doing it. We live in a world of fast-paced news cycles and short attention spans. Our Facebook news feeds fill up with it for the first few days the evening news leads with the story, and then the follow-up accounts of how the family's application to immigrate to Canada was rejected, and so on and so forth. But by now, the story of the drowned boy is already a week and a half old. It's quickly being replaced by other news. And I get, I, I would guess that in another two weeks' time, it will just be another footnote in the tragic story that is unfolding in the Middle East. My friends, we cannot be moved to tears here this morning and then go on and do nothing and feel as though we did something. You see, we can be moved to tears here this morning, but by this afternoon have all but forgotten. And today God is telling us, don't look away. To look away only compounds the tragedy. And this leads to the second truth this morning that I want you to consider. Allow your compassion to translate into action. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion for him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now I want you to notice the three key phrases. He saw, he had compassion, and he went to him. Jesus is teaching something here that is very simple, but it's taken me a really long time to figure out. I, I'm a little slow sometimes, so follow along with me. Jesus is teaching that true compassion does not exist without action. Do you believe that? True compassion does not exist without action. I want you to think about that. How strange would this parable sound if it went like this? 
He saw the man, he had compassion for the man, and then he passed by on the other side. It just wouldn't make any sense, would it? For what good is our compassion if it does not stir us into action? Can we even, can we even call it compassion if we do nothing? I don't think Jesus would. Because every single instance in scripture that we read that Jesus had compassion for someone, or Jesus was moved by compassion, he followed it up with tangible action. He healed, he forgave, he blessed, and yes, he even gave his own life. Allow your compassion to translate into action. Thirdly and finally, be prepared that your action will cost you something. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 35, we read, The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. And I want you to make no mistake about it. The Samaritan's decision to help the wounded man that day was costly. First, it cost him his time. I'm sure that like the priest and the Levite, this man had places to go, people to see, and jobs to get done. But he set aside his agenda, and he gave the rest of his day and part of the next morning in order to help a complete stranger, someone he didn't even know. On top of it, we know that the, the political dynamics of the day, that it was a Samaritan helping a Jew. There was no love lost between those people, and yet he still gave of his time. How many times do you find yourself saying, I wish I could help, but I just don't have any time? How many times do we say things like that? He was willing to sacrifice his time in order to help someone in need. Secondly, it cost him his personal safety. We don't often think about this in the story, but you have to remember it was robbers who had mugged the man and left him for dead. It was even conceivable that the injured man was a ruse to lure someone in so that the robbers could jump him and rob him as well. And so in the interest of personal safety, he would have been justified in getting out of there just as quickly as possible. But he didn't allow that to dissuade him. He put himself on the line. He went off the road to the man of the ditch and he helped him. How many times do we find ourselves not helping because we're afraid of what might happen to us if we do? Maybe this person is, is one of the robbers. Maybe he's had a falling out with the gang. Any number of scenarios could fill our minds to dissuade us from helping. And yet here we see a Samaritan willing to set aside his own personal safety to take a risk in order to help a man. Thirdly, it cost him financially. He not only gave the innkeeper two silver coins or two denarii, which was a lot of money back then, but he also promised that he would return and cover any additional expenses. And I believe he made good on that promise. Now, how many times do we not help because we don't want to part with our hard-earned cash? The Samaritan was willing to count the cost in order to help someone in need. And the Samaritan man knew from the moment he stopped to help that it would cost him something, but he was more than willing to pay the price. And so what about us? Are we willing to pay the price in order to help people in need? For the scriptures would suggest that if we are not, then our religion is useless. The heart of what Jesus is getting at in this parable is pointing at the priest and the Levite. The most religious people in all the nation did not stop 
to hell. They're the ones indicted by this story. Not the Samaritan. The man who everyone else would look upon as a spiritual and social outcast. No, he is the one vindicated in Jesus' story. Religion without action is useless. And the book of James puts it quite bluntly. James chapter 1 and verse 22 says this, Do not just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Verse 27, he continues, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The Jewish Holocaust is the darkest example of a time when for far too long the world chose to look away and do nothing. Now, Corey, if I could get you to pull up the slide of the statue. The picture here is one that I took on our trip to Israel. The man depicted holding the children goes by the name of Yanis Korzak. And the, the monument stands at the Holocaust Memorial at Yad Vashem in Israel. Now, by itself, the statue doesn't really tell the whole story. But as we stood there and we looked at the statue, our guide filled us in on the story of Yanis Korzak. He stands as a shining example of someone who is willing to help those in need, even if it costs him everything. You see, Korsak was a widely read author of children's books, as well as a pediatrician in the 1920s and 1930s in Europe. He became the director of a children's orphanage in Warsaw and spent many years there, becoming like a father to the orphans. So in the summer of 1942, when the Nazis came for his 192 orphans under his direct care, the famous author was offered his freedom if only he would step aside without protest. Protest. Kortzak refused. He chose to stay with his children. He would not leave them. When the group, group of orphans finally reached the deportation center, an SS officer recognized Kortzak's name as the author of one of his favorite children's books and offered him his freedom once more. But once again, Kortzak refused. His children needed him. And so together with his children, they were loaded aboard cattle cars and shipped to the Treblinka death camp, never to be heard from again. Like the Good Samaritan, Yanis Kortsak saw the children's need. His compassion stirred him into action, and he willingly paid the price, even at the cost of his own life. That, my friends, is a picture of the gospel. It is what our Lord Jesus has done for us. He saw us in our greatest need, lost in our sin, and he had compassion upon us. And his compassion did not just stay at a distance, it stirred him into tangible action, where he took on human flesh. He came into this world, he met us where our need was the greatest, and he paid the price by dying on the cross for our sins. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus foreshadows what he would yet do for us. And at the end of it, he makes this statement. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Be like Jesus. We see a picture of that in the Good Samaritan. We see a picture of that in Yanis Korza. When people examine our lives, will, these, will they see a picture of Jesus Christ in us? Will they say those people were moved by their compassion into action? 
and they were willing to pay the price to help people in need. In your bulletin today, we've already highlighted some different ways that you can get involved with the refugee relief effort. And I want to just inform you that we as a church family, uh, I've, I've been looking into and been discussing with Henry and the Missions Committee ways that we as a church can get involved with this crisis in a tangible way. And one of the things we're currently investigating is the possibility of actually sponsoring a refugee family to come to Clarny. And some of you who go way back, you'll remember when our church sponsored a family in 1981 from Vietnam known as the Boat People. And the, the work was put in to actually bring them here to Clarny. Now, to be, to be completely upfront, an endeavor such as that would involve considerable commitment of both time, energy, and resources. But again, if we can help save just one family, isn't that worth it? If, if that is what, if that is what the Lord would lead us to do, absolutely. So, th that's something that we have to, we have to look at closely and carefully. There are, there are Christians being persecuted. There are Muslims being persecuted. It is people of all, all walks and, and creeds who are suffering in this tragedy unfolding in the Middle East. And so, uh, this is something that wouldn't be done without much thought and investigation and obviously a lot of moving parts. But to work together with an organization such as MCC, who is hands-on with this type of relief effort right now, we would have a great partner who would, who would be able to walk us through what that would look like and how we could be involved, whether in a direct way or in an indirect way, to help someone in need. And yeah, if that changes one family's life, then... I believe that, that that is something that will be worth it. And so, of course, we're looking at a big picture, a, a crisis that's huge and on the front of everyone's minds today. But we also need to remember that right around us, there are people in need as well. Here in Killarney, we don't have to look that far to see that there are people who, who need help, who need support, who need love and prayer. And are we going to be those people who are going to look away? Or are we going to be those people who say, hey, how can I help? And then do something. And so whether on a big scale, on a, on a global, in a global crisis, or right here at home, the challenge has been laid down for us today through Jesus Christ himself and his example. Don't look away. Act. Be ready to pay the price. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word that it is not just a dusty old book from the past, it still cuts to our hearts right now. It cuts right through all of our ideas and thoughts and gets right to the heart of the matter. What are we going to do because of what you've done for us? How are we going to respond to others in need? How are we going to allow our compassion to stir us into tangible action? I pray, Lord, that you would guide us as a church family and as individuals. What can we do what can I do to help someone in need today and this week? And I pray, Lord, that as you show us possibilities of ways that we can be involved, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us the fortitude, the inner strength and conviction to follow through and to trust that as we are obedient to what you have called us to do, you will add your blessing, that you will work through it in ways that we can't even foresee, 
but that, Lord, we know that you are at work anytime your children are obedient. And so give us obedient hearts today, Lord. Move our hearts, not only to pity those who are in this terrible situation, but move our hearts to true compassion that will be stirred into action through the power and the ability that you have given us. And so we pray, God, that you would work and, and go before us in this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.